Welcome to the No Water Methodist Church Podcast, where we hope to encourage you in your spiritual journey so that you may be a blessing to your local church and to the world. Hi friends, this is episode 10 of our podcast over at the No Water Methodist Church, and this episode is of our worship service that we had this last Sunday. The primary readings dealt with um, wealth, money management, in light of the widow of Zarephath, as well as the lady who put in two copper pennies. Um, so we're, we've got New Testament, Old Testament, we've got some other scriptures dealing with um, the Hebrews reading really doesn't intersect very much, and I don't think we include the psalm. But uh, anyway, most of my time is, is really spent on proper role of money and wealth and wealth disparity, which uh, I know it's not fun necessarily to hear or think about, but it is really pretty key for, I mean, Jesus talked about money all the time. So I just don't think we have the luxury of not talking about money, um, and it matters so um, I would encourage you, even if you really don't enjoy sermons like this, uh, to, to tune in and, and do the proper spiritual reflection and um, just keep your uh, eyes peeled. We're probably going to put out another podcast at the end of the week this week. I was able to sit down with Errol Hayda over at the Lighthouse Outreach Center over in Bartlesville and had a good interview with him. And uh, we're going to share that with just anybody who would benefit from knowing more about what they do or the principles involved in working with troubled people. Um, so anyway, uh, go ahead and uh, subscribe if you haven't already to our podcast and just stay plugged in. We're really trying to, to help people in their daily personal lives grow in their uh, relationship with Christ and spiritual discernment. And um, anyway, I hope that's the role that it plays in your life. And uh, whether you're doing the dishes or mowing the lawn or just sitting looking out a window, I hope that uh, my reflections are a real blessing to you and that you feel uh, closer to Christ Jesus uh, through the time you spend listening to this podcast. So I'm going to stop talking and you're going to go into what we talked about on Sunday. Enjoy. Now before we turn to God's Word, just a couple reminders of how and why I preach. Um, There are some pastors who see what they do as like an extension of the Bible. Um, I don't. I think the Bible is the Bible and these are my words and what I try and do is is not give you an addition to God's word, but just try and... Um, I heard a quote this week that um, John MacArthur said it. He said, the scriptures are like a lion, okay? You don't need to help a lion along. You just let him out of his cage and he gets business done, right? That's what a lion does. That's what the scriptures do. You just read the scriptures and they will instruct you in where to go. And then our, what I'm doing when I'm preaching is just talking about what we've just read together and doing my best to earnestly seek... You know, uh, when you're coming to the Bible, if the question is, what does this mean to you? You're always going to be wrong because the Bible's not about you. It's about God and then locating yourself within God. The question when we come to the Bible is not, what does this mean to you? The question is, what does this mean? What does this mean? And then an earnest heart praying for illumination from the Holy Spirit will discern God's will. And that's what we're doing here. That's why we're spending half the service just seeking knowledge from God's word. I don't pick the readings, they come from the Revised Common Lectionary. People far away a long time ago selected them. We always have 
an Old Testament reading, a psalm, a New Testament reading, and a gospel reading. Sometimes they're related, sometimes they're not. Uh, I'll go ahead and tell you the theme that I'm going to highlight today is the, the theme of giving out of poverty. Uh, Jesus talks about the women giving her two mites to the temple offering. Uh, we're also going to hear the story of the widow at Zarephath who took care of Elijah out of her poverty. And then we, we have a psalm that lends itself to that, and Hebrews really doesn't, but it's still great, so we're doing it. Um, so what I would pray for as, as we do this, there are some pastors who imagine that something that they say in the sermon is just going to change somebody's life. I don't think there's a single thing that I can say that is going to change your life if you don't want it changed. I don't think there's anything I'm going to say that's going to rock your world. I haven't, I haven't spent hours during the week crafting a sermon that is meant to, to just win the case for something in your life. You decide how much you let God's word impact you. And there are people that sit in pews every week and are totally un, unaffected and they go home exactly the same. But there are also people who choose, I'm going to trust God, I'm going to trust his word, I'm going to trust the community of faith, and I'm going to let myself be impacted by them. I'm not saying brainwashed. Some people, as soon as I start talking about this, saying, he just wants to brainwash me. No, I don't. I just think it would be wonderful to have a community of people that's transformed by the living word of God. So that's what we're seeking here as, as we're doing this together. You decide what's in your heart. I've let you know I'm not trying to change you. I just like preaching. I just like preaching. I would do it. I do it on my own. Sarah Beth will tell you, sometimes she'll walk into a room, and I'm just talking to myself because I like talking about the most important things, and these are the most important things. Can anyone say amen to that? Amen. All right, so I'll be done talking for right now, and we'll welcome our first reader up for our First Kings reading. Our first reading is from First Kings chapter 17, verses 8 through 16, which begins on page 551 in your pew Bibles. Listen to the word of God. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, And bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, Don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first, make a small loaf of bread for me from what, you from what you have and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up, and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and, for, and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up, and the jug of oil did not run dry, in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. The word of the Lord. So the prelude to this was that um, Elijah is the prophet of the Lord at this time, and they're dealing with a wicked king and a wicked nation that's following this wicked king. And so the Lord decides that through Elijah, he is going to inaugurate a drought, okay? And a drought is exactly what it sounds like. It's no rain coming, which means no crops growing, which means people starving. This widow at Zarephath, in an ancient context, most people know this, widows didn't have it easy. Most of them, uh, you required a male head of a household to to form a legal representation and defend the family, be the primary breadwinner um, in an agrarian economy. You needed hard 
working men that could produce and compete with one another. This widow, we aren't told what happened to her husband, but we know she's raising a son all by herself in this ancient context of a drought, and things are not going well for her. Then Elijah is told by the Lord, this stream where he's at dries up, and the Lord says, go over to this widow in Zarephath and have her take care of you. Now, let's just let's use our practical worldly minds for a minute. If you have to go to a new region, do you want to bunk up with a, a widow who has nothing, or maybe one of the more well-off people in town, maybe with a man in the house that is a breadwinner and can provide plenty of food? Which would you choose, selfishly? Most people would choose... I'm going to go to the, the, the established man. I'm not going to, you know, some of us might be selfish. I, I want some food. I don't want to starve with this old lady. Some of us might be thinking kind of compassionately. I don't want to burden this woman with feeding me when she's already got mouths to fill. Doesn't matter what our rationalization is. God said to Elijah, go impose yourself on this widow. And that's exactly what he does. He asks her for some water. And then he says, I need some food. Go make me some food. And she says, actually, I have very little of anything. I was going to go home and eat the rest of it with my son. And then we were going to die together. So do things sound dire, like a dire situation? That's about as dramatic as it gets, you know? Every now and again, whenever I can't sleep, you know, I have this terrible brain that thinks about worst case scenarios. And I think about all the awful things that could happen to my children and what it would be like if something bad happened to my child. And then can you imagine what it's like to be a widow who's watching your son starve to death and you can't save him and, and you can't save yourself, so you're just gonna eat and die together. Can you imagine how miserable that is? So that's where this woman is. This man of God comes into her life, says, well, why don't you go home and make me some food, give it to me first, and then you guys take care of yourself and uh, we'll call it a deal. Most people would say, look, buddy, I don't know you from Adam. I don't know you anything. You're crazy if you're thinking I'm going to give the last bit of food to you when I, I need to take care of my son. She doesn't say any of that. She goes home. She makes the food. She brings it to him. What happens then? The Lord blesses her. She gave out of her poverty. Because of that, her, her wheat never ran out. Her oil never ran out. And she was able to provide for Elijah and herself and her son for months out. I forget how, many, how long he was with her. He was with her a long time. This isn't the last miracle her son at one point dies, and Elijah is able to bring, her back, bring him back to life. But it, this relationship begins with this act of selfless giving from this woman who had nothing to give. She had nothing to give. We live in a culture that says the only people who should give are the people who have an abundance, and that it's an irresponsible thing when you don't have much to share what you have with others. We, we, we like our financial advisors who, you know, I, I follow pray to this as much as anybody. Dave Ramsey is a, uh, a Christian consultant talking about money, and a lot of times the things that he talks about is stupid investments Christians make. Now, I'm always going to tell you it's a bad idea to go get lottery tickets or go to the casino. I think that's the dumbest, one of the dumbest things you can do with your money, and it's based in greed, and it's just a bad idea. Don't, don't do that, please, you know. But even so, there are other things that are bad investments, like lending money to your poor neighbor who's probably not going to pay you back. Some people would look at that and say, why would you do that? You got, you got mouths to feed at home. Why would you lend money to somebody who's not going to pay you back? Is that a good financial thing to do? No. Is it a faithful, godly thing to do? Yes. Jesus even provides for it. He says, if you lend money to somebody who doesn't pay you back, God sees it and he rewards you for it. Does that sound like a good thing? A lot of financial advisors would say, you're a dummy if you give money to the poor. 
when the rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, what must I do to have eternal life? Jesus said, you're doing all the things except one thing. Go sell all you have and give your money to the poor. And then you will have riches in heaven. This is something that's all over the scriptures. This is something, you know, the, the, what it lines up is the world has a scarcity mindset. Oh, I have to hoard because I might not have enough forever. I need to hoard money. I need to hoard goods. I need to hoard food. I need to hoard friends and good relationships I, because the hard times are coming ahead, and uh, i got to provide for people. The Bible has an abundance mindset where we don't worry about those things. Jesus has a whole section on the Sermon on the Mount. Don't worry. Don't worry about what you will eat, what you will drink, what you will wear. The Lord takes care of these things. The Savior we have had thousands of people gathered around him, and the practical disciples said, we need to send them away because they're about to get hungry, and they're going to faint on the way. And Jesus says, no, you know what? We're going to feed them. And they say, we only have a few loaves and fishes. And Jesus says, it's enough. He breaks and blesses the bread. He passes around the fish. And what do you know? Thousands of people are fed, and there are 12 bags of food left over. How does that happen? There is no economic theory for this. This is the economy of God. The economy of God is he has told us to share. He has told us to give. He has told us to pour ourselves out for others as Jesus poured himself out for us. And then there are just the faithful and the faithless. The faithful say, okay, I'll do it. And then things just magically work. It seems like magic. It's not magic. It's God's will. They work out. Then there are other people saying, nope, I don't see how it works out. That's bad fiscal policy. That's irresponsible. I'm not doing it. I will love you, Jesus, but I will not live as you've told me. It only works out well for one group. And just to be completely transparent, right now I'm preaching about myself. I'm preaching against myself. I am convicted by this sermon I'm giving right now because my wife and I, we set aside money. We worry about the days ahead. We have anxieties for our children. I'm needing to hear this sermon because I am a slave to worldly concerns and I need liberation. Pray for me. But I know that when I'm going through it, odds are a lot of you are going through it too. What I'm going through is a very typical thing. And we have to learn to love without anxiety and worry. And that's so hard because those two things, they just feel like they're married. But that's how Jesus loved us. He loved us so much he died for us. That's why we have that cross up there. It's a reminder of Christ's love for us. But he wasn't worried. He knew he could trust his father to bring about all things. He knew that there was nothing that could be done to dismantle his father's will. And you know what? If I take my comfort and my joy in my father in heaven, and I believe that he is powerful and he is good, then you know what? There is nothing to worry about. But if my God becomes something else, if my God becomes my work, my wealth, my children, my fun, my leisure, a lot of people make gods out of different things. And then whenever you think it... Here was a meme I posted this week. How do you know if something's a sin or if something has become an idol to you? You will either sin to get it or you will sin when you don't get it. If something causes you to sin to get it or you sin if you don't get it, then it has become an idol for you. And how does the Lord feel about idolatry? Not good. Yeah, that's a good summary. God is a jealous God. When he gave the Ten Commandments, and it's the second commandment, you shall have no other God. No, the first one is you shall have no other gods before me. The second one is you shall not make for yourself an idol. He says, for I am a jealous God. We got home from worship last week. We were talking about it with my daughter, Susanna, five-year-old. She said, don't say that about God. He's not jealous. We said, honey, he is a jealous God. That's, you know, love and anxiety are not two sides of the same cord. 
But love and jealousy, a holy jealousy, those are two sides of the same coin. The Lord is jealous for us. He loves us. He deserves us. He doesn't share us with anything. And the test before us all the time, easy, just do your budget and see where your loyalties lie. On a monthly, yearly basis, look where all your money goes, what it goes to, and why. I know a couple of you in the church doing this right now. It's been eye-opening. A lot of people going, I spend a lot of money in places I really don't need to be. Other people do this, and they go, I'm so glad I'm spending money. I say, you know what? God is really doing powerful things in my butt. But if you want to see where your loyalties lie, it's real easy. Just get out a spreadsheet, look at where all your money is going, figure out why, and then how much of it is going for you, how much of it is going for hobbies, how much of it's going for fun, how much of it's going to glorify God. And don't hear me saying you need to be giving all your money to the church. That is not the only way you glorify God with money. Thank you for giving to the church. Because of, of, of you guys, our church is doing very well financially. I'm not giving a, you need to give more to the church. We're doing fine financially. But giving to the poor is really important. It's all over the Bible. And then there are other things. To, you know, one of the ways that I know our society is not doing well is people used to have each other over for dinner. People don't do that anymore. They don't share food with each other anymore. Most people, whenever they need money, they might go to their friend, but they're going to their friend that, that owes them something. They're not, people don't impose themselves on each other anymore the way that Elijah did on this widow. People don't lean on each other this way anymore. People don't trust each other the way they used to anymore. I think something's lost. I think a, a basic way, if there, here's one practical thing I'm going to ask you to do. Most of you have neighbors. Some of them are a mile or two away. But a lot of us don't know our neighbors. And our neighbors don't know we're Christians. Don't know that we have been purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ. They don't know that we are people of the light. They just think that we're normal people like everybody else. And are we supposed to be normal people like everybody else? No, the scriptures say we're supposed to be a peculiar people. I love that it uses that word in the King James, peculiar. This peculiar people is supposed to know and love our neighbors. Invite them over for dinner. Pray over them. Pray with them. Get to know their kids. I think a certain, just reclaiming neighborliness, if people in churches would do that, everything would change in our society. We've gotten scared like everybody else. There isn't any reason to be scared anymore. Christ has paid it all. So I skirt along politics, but I don't really preach politics. Some, some Methodists used to say a good preacher preaches with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other, and I really don't do that. I think once you're participating in a conversation in the political frameworks that have already been established, those are set up for Jesus and his people to lose every time. Okay, so I'm, you're never going to get a rah-rah Democrat, rah-rah Republican, rah-rah Libertarian, anything sermon from me. Um, so as I, as I start talking about contemporary political environment, I don't want you going, he's about to set it up where one party is right and it's not mine. And I, I don't want you doing that because I'm not doing that. I do the thing where everybody's wrong. You ever notice when Jesus, people would come to him with questions to trick him or something, his answer would always be kind of from the side and it wouldn't really give them what they wanted. That's how a lot of political issues, in my opinion, actually need to get solved in America. The issue that I'm particularly borrowed by, borrowed, bothered by is this issue of uh, income inequality right now. Uh, when you look at how much average Americans make, um, a, a common refrain is the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. That's not necessarily the truth, but it is the truth that the rich are getting just 
gobs and gobs richer, whereas the poor really have stayed in, in a similar place despite inflation. Some sectors have actually gotten a little bit worse. That matters, but what matters more is the proposed solutions. And when you have a, a big federal government that uses coercive power, the temptation is always to say, well, let's just take money from the rich and give it to the poor. And the sentiment there is good. You can get there from reading your Bible. You know, when you're reading your Bible, the Lord definitely cares about the poor, does he not? You cannot argue against that. You cannot sit in a church pew and go, no, the Lord doesn't want us to care for the poor. You're, if you're reading your Bible, the Lord cares for the poor. He seems to have a preferential care for the poor. Here in this psalm, there's a long list of disadvantaged people that the Lord liberates and cares for. You cannot say that the Lord does not care for the poor. The question that different political factions argue about is, should the federal government coerce people into caring for the poor? Should the federal government be, be uh, compelling people to do what they should do? And that's what law is. Law is coercive power being used to make people behave because they wouldn't naturally behave, right? So there's some scripture that, that says, uh, you know, Jesus says, give Caesar what Caesar is due, right? I'm making people uncomfortable already. I haven't said the thing I'm going to say yet. Just calm down. So, so there is scripture that tells us that uh, in, in Romans, the language is God has not given them the sword in vain. They're here to use coercion. You know, that's what governments do. But when we have been given a role to play in our own government, what's the right way to go? And I'm actually not going to give you a policy proposal. What I'm going to say is we would not be in this predicament if the rich had been doing what they were supposed to be doing all along, which is sharing with the poor. And I'm, that's not to say no rich have been sharing with the poor. A ton have, actually. And so part of the problem is on the news that doesn't report on it. You know, we live in a world where we really believe that all rich people are just greedy and holding on to all their money and not giving to any foundations, not giving any money to the poor, not engaging poor populations at all. And that's not true. There are some, but there are not enough. And there are people who claim to follow Jesus that have more than they're ever going to need, but they do not give to the poor. They want the government to take from them so they will give to the poor, maybe. But there's this thing called noblesse oblige. It's not based in the Bible, but it's based in Western civilization. The notion is when the Lord has blessed you with an abundance, your obligation is to share that. And if Christians knew that, the world would not be in the shape it's in right now. The problem is that Christians are not practicing what Jesus preaches. For those of us who have an abundance, we need to be seeking ways to bless others with that abundance. Jesus tells a story, bad story about a guy he blessed with a certain amount of money. Master goes away for a time, and then the master comes back and says, what did you do with it? He says, I sat on it. I buried in a hole. I was afraid of losing it. The other two he gave money to, they used it. They, they, they let it flourish, but the guy who just sat on it buried in a hole, God punishes. We've been given wealth not for our own good, not to just sit on. We've been given wealth to bless others. That's the whole point. This, this whole point of religion thing that we're doing here, it's not about just me and Jesus. You notice you got these other people in the pews with you right now. You notice we're gathered in the middle of a town with people out there we're supposed to be a blessing to one another and a blessing to them. And if we're not doing it, something is wrong. And that's when other parties get involved and say, we'll fix it this way. We'll fix it this way. And then there's a the law of unintended consequences. And then I do get political, so we're not going to talk about that. Let's, um, let's go on 
Our third reading is from Hebrews. We've been talking about how Jesus is the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Today we're talking about covenant. That's like a legal agreement, so it's going to start off talking about wills, which is a form of covenant. Uh, we're going to talk about um, the blood. What role does blood play in our salvation or forgiveness? And then uh, we'll come back to Jesus and sing a hymn about him. So I'd welcome our Hebrews reader to come forward now. Our third reading is from Hebrews, chapter 9, verses 16 through 28, which begins on page 1870 in your pew Bibles. Listen again to the word of God. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it, because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the whole, most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. The word of the Lord. Did anyone catch that, um, that sentence began with, for without the shedding of blood there can be no, anybody remember what that word is? Huh? Forgiveness. That was it. There are a lot of people who forget that Christianity is just as concerned with blood as the ancient Jewish uh, faith that was concerned with the sacrifice. And if you're not aware of it, the, the setup that it's dealing with here is there was a temple. And the temple was understood to be a copy, a replica of the heavenly temple where God resides in the heavenly realms. And he gave the instructions for how it was to be built. The Jews built it. And what would happen there is there was an order of priests. People would bring cows, bulls, rams to be sacrificed for different sins, and these priests would bring it into God's house, kill it, and there was just a river of blood flowing out of that place. The life was in the blood. The notion was that it was only the shedding of blood that purified, you know, it was saying Moses went through all the temple and put blood on everything, purified them, but also the, the blood was symbolically applied to people's sins, and that's what achieved atonement, where their sins were blotted out and it was undone. Christians believe in the exact same thing, only we believe that one sacrifice was so much better than all the others that it only needed to be done once, and it applies for all eternity, and that's the blood of Jesus being shed on the cross. That's how powerful that event is. And the question is, well, it starts off here with this talk of wills, 
in covenants. It says a will is not enforced while a person is still living, okay? Sarah Beth and I did a video a couple months ago. She and I sat down with the lawyer finally and figured out we, we came up with a will and a trust. We've just seen so many families really suffer when people, if I've, ta I've talked about this before, I'm gonna say it again. If you don't have a will or trust in place, you really need to. It just really hurts families in a lot of different ways when nothing is in place. You know, and I know it feels kind of morbid, but you gotta get over it. I mean, you have to have something in place. Otherwise, they're trying to read your mind because they don't know what you wanted you to do with your stuff. Sometimes families argue about who gets what. There's no good that comes out of not having a will, so you should do it. But that's not the point of this reading. The point of this reading is people don't start trying to enforce the will before the person dies. It only takes effect when someone dies. In order for the new covenant to take place, someone had to die. Who was it? Jesus. And in order for forgiveness to take place, some blood had to be shed. Whose blood was that? Jesus. You see how this is all connected? And the reason Jesus is so much better is for any of these other temporary sacrifices, the, the, the closest they ever get to God is the replica temple here on earth. But Jesus now has gone to the heavenly temple now to appear in the presence of God for us. That's the distinction it's making. And that's because Jesus sits at the right hand of God. His forgiveness, his atonement is so much better than anything any animal can do for us. His forgiveness is so powerful that it makes us holy. So the, the notion here is that the Holy Spirit, when you have been, anybody ever heard that phrase, have you been washed in the blood? This is something, you know, because there have always been nominal Christians, people who don't really believe in it or live anything different, and so we come up with code like, are you one of the real ones or one of the fake ones? And for a while, the code was, have you been washed in the blood of the Lamb? You know, and if somebody said, ooh, no, uh, you go, oh, you're a nominal Christian. You don't like the blood stuff. But the real Christians, uh, according to this code, are the ones who go, yep, Jesus' blood has been applied to my heart. I have been remade. The old me is dead. The new me is being sanctified in Christ. Yes, I have been washed in the blood. If you never knew what that was about, I hope that's laid out pretty easy for you. But here the point of this reading is Jesus' blood was good enough to atone for all of our sins and help us to become holy as he is holy. That's the whole content of the New Testament. That's the whole concern is we put away all the worldly concerns and anxieties and cares because we are now one with a God who can and will take care of all of that. So it's with that in mind that we're going to turn to our final reading. Um, but, well, we're going to skip let all mortal flesh keep silence because I talked longer than I should. Um, I don't regret it. I like all the stuff we're talking about. Um, the final reading is going to be uh, Mark chapter 10, verses 46 through 52, and this will just be the last bit for today. It's found on page uh, 1580 in your pew Bibles. Listen again to the word of God. As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple and treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts 
But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. This is the word of the Lord. If we read this with worldly eyes and ears, it makes no sense. What's worth more? $100 or one penny? You tell me. What's worth more? Just in a worldly sense, what's worth more? The $100. $100. Qualitatively, it's worth more. Jesus answer, he says, before I give it, tell me who gave it. How much money do they already have? For us with worldly mind, we go, what does that matter? $100? Do we want, a lot of churches, they have practical conversations. Hey, do we want to minister to the poor and have people who can't put much money into the plate? Or do we want to have a ministry that focuses on middle class, upper middle class, people that have some money to give? A lot of churches make that decision. We want money in the plate, you know? And they might say, okay, poor person here and now is fine, but let's focus on the comfortable rich people, okay? And that's how they get by. That's, they, when confronted with the scriptures, they go, you want to run a church on no money? You just show me how that's done. What do you think Jesus would say to that? You're not going to minister to the poor because they don't have money to give you? We make fun of people in the pews for being consumers, but the reality is that the people at the top of churches are the biggest consumers of all. They only do it for the money so much of the time. And God help me if I ever turn into a preacher like that, would y'all please run me out of town? I am not playing. You do not need a false charlatan preacher in the pulpit here chasing money. We've been blessed with money here. I hope I've been clear. That's not for us to sit on it and feel good about ourselves and be wealthy. It's for the care of the local poor. I've been seeking out ways to do that. I've been interviewing people at different nonprofits. I'm going to go sit down tomorrow with Errol Hayda over at Lighthouse. I, went, I already went and toured there a couple weeks ago. He decided to let me sit down and interview him. TJ and I are going to put it all on YouTube and Facebook for everybody to see. We want you guys learning with us. How can we use our blessings here for the good and care of the local poor? Because that's why God has entrusted us with that money, right? It's not for us to build a nice new building. I would love to have a, a, a big pipe organ. I would love that. But Jesus didn't put us here to have a nice big pipe organ. There are people out there who are really struggling and suffering. There are kids, if you ever want to know some sad stories, I shouldn't sign you up for this, but Bryn, through the Boys and Girls Club, she works with families that are hurting a lot of the time. She sees a lot of these dynamics at play. A lot of us don't know how hard these families in town have it, children in particular. I'm so sorry. I should have talked. I didn't know I was going to bring it up. I hope you're okay talking about that, though. We might just have her get up here sometime and talk about it. We, a lot of people, don't know how hard it is to be poor. It's more expensive to be poor than it is to be middle class. There are a lot more problems that come up on a daily basis. The anxiety level is up here. We're here to do something about it. I didn't mean to ream everybody out this bad today, but I, I, we have this money. We're supposed to do something with it. What are we supposed to do? We need to be praying about God. Send us discernment. So keep giving to the church, but as you do so, keep in mind, this isn't you know, to, to pay the piper. This is a big extension of our faith. This woman out of her poverty, she gave to God. She wasn't even giving it to the poor. She just gave it to God. It's a temple offering. And she knew that her life is not about holding on to money for herself. It's to glorify God. 
She gave out of poverty. She wasn't hoarding money and giving out of wealth. These guys were given a lot of money because they had gathered money and they were giving out of a big balance. This lady never even hoarded the money. She just gave it to God and the poor. It doesn't say the poor, but I assume that. I feel like that's a safe assumption. Jesus blesses this woman. He says she's actually given a lot more than them. And so here's, here's the question. is One day, you and I and everybody we know, we're all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ, right? This is basic Christian theology. And we're going to have to reflect on our lives. In Romans and Revelation, it says we're going to be judged based on what we've done, how we've lived. And a big question, I believe, you know, Jesus talked about money a lot. I think one of the questions we're going to have to reflect on is, what did I do with the things God entrusted to me? With all these blessings that God gave, all this abundance, did I sit on it? Did I worry about it? Did I hold on to it? Or did I share it and give it freely? And I think that that question very much reflects how living and active our faith is. So, to wrap this up, I've given a sermon today that very much convicts me, okay? I am not guiltless in all of this. But I want to believe, you know, I've been here six and a half years. I want to believe we can all, like, reflect. I'm not telling you to give all your money to the church. Please don't do that. I can't take care of you, you know. But I am saying with the money that you've been given, with not just money, other resources. A lot of you have been given different talents, different gifts, different connections, different abilities. Are you using those things for God's glory? Are you giving those things away or are you holding on to them? And here's the most incisive thing I'm going to say today. If you're holding on to them, quit it. God bless you as you try to be Christians. Let's end our time of worship together. It's noon right now. What we're going to do, we're going to.